Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Hi there, and welcome to the Global Council podcast. I'm Rishi Patel, the practice lead for policy communications here at GC. I'm joined today by Matt Bevington, Senior Associate in the Political Due Diligence team, and we're going to be talking about the recent by-election um, in Batley and Spen, where the Labour Party have um, exceeded expectations in recent weeks by the Commentariat to come first in a tight race, which could tell us a bit more about the direction of the Labour Party in the future and UK politics. Hi there, Matt. Hi, Rishi. So let's talk a bit about the by-election itself. Labour managed to sort of win at the skin of their teeth, I guess, with 323 votes. Tell us a bit more about sort of your immediate reflections um, for the race. Sure. So I think, obviously, Keir Starmer and his team are going to be very relieved that they won this. I mean, all the noises in the media beforehand were that this was going to be a bit of a struggle for them. Um, it always was a different race to the Hartlepool by-election in the sense that it was always going to be a lot closer. It's a very different seat in terms of demographic makeup and in terms of who's held the seat historically. Uh, the Conservatives held it, I think, until the 1997 election. So it's not as if it's always been Labour, but it has been Labour in the, in the recent past. So it was a relief that they held on, but I mean, they still went backwards in terms of their own vote share. They still went backwards relative to the Conservatives. It doesn't seem as though this result provides the party with any kind of model that they can reapply elsewhere. There were obviously a lot of local issues going on to do with George Galloway standing. They had a particularly strong candidate themselves in Joe Cox's sister. Um, and obviously, given it's a by-election, there's always a lot of uncertainty anyway. So it's a good result for the party in the sense that they've avoided a lot of the internal wrangling that would that would inevitably have come had they lost. But I'm not sure it provides them with much optimism or sort of much of a strategy that they can then reapply in future. It seems to me more, more to be of a one-off and more to be about slowing the decline rather than actually reversing it. I think you're right there. And I think uh, uh, the big sort of takeaway for me was this is a sigh of relief really for the Labour leadership. And there's been a lot of recent briefing to the press and infighting, I guess, not obviously that there always is in, 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 in UK politics, but about um, questioning um, Keir Starmer's leadership and it's interesting that the result of the by-election um, probably means that he's got a bit more breathing space than he probably would have had uh, otherwise um, given what's happening what's been happening in recent weeks. Yeah I think, I think that's definitely true and it comes at a particularly useful time obviously over summer MPs go back to the constituencies um, the government is actually go going through quite a difficult period or he's likely to come to a much more difficult period in the next few months as they begin to sort of remove some of the economic support measures they've had in place they've obviously got the spending review coming up which will necessitate some difficult questions so I think what what this result does do is it is it takes the focus off labour because there's not much of a story really in it for journalists and probably directs it back towards the government which in itself is probably helpful for the party and especially as Keir Starmer has kind of reshaped his team over the last few weeks there have been quite some quite high profile changes um, he's brought in Deborah Mattinson, the pollster, um, as his director of strategy. Matthew Doyle has come in, who used to work with Tony Blair. He obviously has a new shadow chancellor in Rachel Reeves. So as you say, this just gives them 
his top team a bit of time to bed in to establish themselves. Um, there's also the policy review ongoing, so it will just give some time for that process to play out and report. And he's also got a, a planned summer tour around the UK in which he plans to listen to voters. So it just gives a bit of breathing space and room for him to do that without having to be under, um, as you say, the sort of internal party pressure. And I think inevitably, if, if Labour had lost this, the left, the left of the party would have been calling for him to go and they would have been pushing for a challenge. So it's just a, a kind of, as you say, a relief and an opportunity for him then to, to kind of rebuild his credibility and his authority over the summer. Exactly. And I mean, as you as you know, it's it's been a bit of a torrid time um, for for Keir Starmer, for those around him. Um, and let's hope, I guess, for his sake, that the change of personnel provides that new strategic direction that perhaps the party has been lacking, or at least MPs feel that the party has been lacking, um, given given where they are um, in the polls. Let's talk a bit more about um, the appointment of Deborah Mattinson, because I think that that is quite an interesting one. So the former director of Britain Thinks, the, the qualitative research company, she's written a uh, interesting book called Beyond the Red Wall, looking at the attitudes and the perceptions of voters in Labour's uh, old heartlands in within the Red Wall and thinking about how it is, why it is that they left the party in, in the 2019 election. My perception of it is, you know, she's she's got some great ideas. She's obviously done a lot of, you know, the important listening work that translate into some kind of strategy, hopefully for the party, but that it's more of a prescription of the problem rather than prov uh, providing solutions. You know, we all know that that, that what Labour's struggles are uh, and, and, the, and the challenge that Labour faces. But do you think, you know, from your reading of it, that there, there is the opportunity for some kind of new vision? And what do you think that the party strategy is likely to be in the coming weeks and months? So, yeah, I, I think I agree that she's a pretty good appointment. I mean, if you were trying to win back the Red Wall, you could, you'd struggle to find anyone more or better qualified to, to try and help you to do that. I think the issue really is twofold. First of all, it's to do with Keir Starmer himself. He can bring in as many people as he likes. And he's, he now has a very good team around him. But until he decides what the strategy should be, then it's not going to be clear to his own MPs, to his activists, the direction the party needs to go. So the, the sort of direction of travel needs to be set by him, not by his advisors. And just by changing the team doesn't change the fact that he has yet really to articulate um, a vision of the party and the country for the future that is something that most of his party can get behind, most of his MPs can get behind and uh, connects with voters. So that's the, that's, that's the first point. I think in terms of strategy, the party has done quite a lot of thinking about this. They had a, a kind of review post-2019 election in which they brought together um, all sides of the party to try and look at what the issues were. And the issues they, they pointed out were really systemic to do with education patterns, um, sort of migration patterns, um, a sort of loss of um, identity connection with the party. And that's those are kind of things it's very difficult for the party to really address or, or change. They, they really just find themselves on the wrong side of some demographic shifts that are really beyond their control. Um, Keir Starmer's strategy so far seems to be that he wants to hold on to the 2019 vote, but also recapture the vote that they lost to the Conservatives in the North and try and hold together these two parts of the coalition. That has always been Labour's challenge. Um, but it, it's not really clear that he has any strategy to do that other than to say, well, you know, I'm not Jeremy Corbyn. And that's it, really. There hasn't really been a, a kind of positive offer to voters that he has a, a clear vision of the Britain of the future uh, and how the Labour Party could help help to achieve that. So I think 
you know, what what we should probably expect is that once we, we're out of the immediate post-pandemic period, that Keir Starmer will come forward with some kind of major speech or, or, or compelling offer to voters that actually, that actually sets out what his view of all this stuff is. Because until he does that, I think people continue to associate him with the Jeremy Corbyn period. He hasn't really made much effort to distance himself from Jeremy Corbyn or set out the ways in which he's different. So I think there's a lot of work to do. And yes, having a good team is, is, is important, but it's really him that needs to come up with uh, the direction that he thinks the party should go in. And I guess the challenge there for him, as you so rightly point out, is when he was elected, he was positioned quite cleverly, I guess, by the people around him at the time as the candidate to solve all party factions problems. So, you know, he was going to continue the, the, the economic prescription of the, of, of the left, but he could bring some modernising capabilities for the right. And, you know, people on the right perhaps hoped that he would be sort of secretly more more to the centre than than perhaps he was letting on in that in that election. And obviously, you know, he's from the soft left, so they were happy. Do you, would you say that, you know, that, that strategy doesn't seem to have worked because you need to have some clarity and, and some direction? I mean, it's difficult when you're trying to be all things to all people. Yeah, definitely. And I think, ironically, his, his attempt to unite the party has actually meant that he's not, he doesn't really have many people who are actually that loyal to him. The left have always been looking for reasons to, to challenge him and, and accuse him of actually rowing back on some of his promises that he made during the leadership election. And he's yet to really energize those who, who actually wanted him to do well uh, on the sort of center, center right side of the party. So he just seems to be occupying, trying to occupy a centre ground that doesn't really satisfy either left or right. And, and as a result, he's slightly stranded and actually struggling to hold it together. And his, his position is fundamentally weak because it only requires 40 MPs to challenge him for the leadership. The left is in the high 30s. And given the, the kind of eruptions that followed the, the Hartlepool by-election um, and the positioning of his deputy, Angela Rayner, she could basically at any point decide that she wanted to challenge him. And it's very likely she would have the MPs to do it. So you know, he's he's in a very, very weak position going forward. And I think this result helps to sort of solidify him slightly, but there could be further by-elections and further elections where his, his sort of authority is just gradually eroded further and further. And the real danger for Labour is that they actually end up sleepwalking into another election disaster because we are potentially less than two years away from the next election. And Labour is still kind of scrabbling around trying to figure out what it stands for um, what the leader stands for, what its main mes message is going to be to voters, what its strategy is going to be, and it's still kind of fighting with itself. Plus, <laughs> as if as if there weren't enough things for Keir Starmer to deal with, we have several elections of sort of new heads of the unions. If they don't go in his favour, it's going to be sort of more pressure on him um, from outside the party as well. So you you would you would wouldn't envy his position at the minute, but I think really what's missing is him grabbing the party by the scruff of the neck and saying, "This is the direction we need to go in." This is what I believe. It may be wrong, it may be right, but having some sort of clarity about what he thinks the direction the party should go in is, it seems to me to be absolutely crucial. Exactly, and it goes back to that, the old Alistair Campbell adage of you can't win an election without three things, OST, objective strategy, tactics, and the objective must be to win the election. The strategy must be the thing that hangs, um, the message that hang overhangs all of that. And the tactics are what you do. And it feels like the party is focused quite a lot on tactical considerations around winning back certain groups of people. The the leaked report that ha that came out at the beginning of the year where it said, you know, stand by some flags and, and shake hands with some veterans. 
that, that that's all good and well and all important necessary stuff but unless there's some kind of overarching vision to to overhang everything it's going to be a, a difficult mountain to climb let's just turn a bit back back to the government so so you mentioned matt an election potentially coming down the tracks earlier in 2023 where do we see the government at the moment and what, what's what's our sort of perception of, of of how things are going one one argument which I'm not sure I agree with, but one argument for the around the Hartlepool by-election was that it was in the heart of the vaccine bounce. Perhaps that sheen is tapering off slightly um, now, and with the resignation of Matt Hancock, that might continue to, 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 to be a story. Perhaps there's an opportunity for Labour to capitalise on a narrative of cronyism or incompetence or something like that in the coming months. I'm sceptical about that, but you never know. Where, but where, what's our sort of view here and what do you what do you think well i think you're right in saying that labor's best chance uh, of improving its position in the polls really is the government making missteps i think that's always of course the case when you're in opposition um and actually the party may not need to do very much to improve its position in the polls i think there have been some in recent weeks that have pointed to a slight tightening given all that's been going on with, with matt hancock and, and a few other things um and as i said earlier there are some really difficult issues the government is having to grapple with at the minute that could easily uh, go the wrong way. So the spending review, obviously, um, the sort of unlocking, no one really knows exactly what the what the economic impacts of that are going to be. Um, and if they're worse than planned or worse than expected, if we also have a kind of sustained in inflation spike, that's another another kind of risk on the government's dashboard that they'll be looking at. All of these things could easily turn public opinion against the government. And I don't think you know, whether or not the vaccine the vaccine program did did support government polling ahead of the party poll, I don't think voters are going to necessarily be keep supporting the government because they're grateful about the vaccine if, it, if they've ended up losing their job, if prices in the shops are, really, are, are spiking, if, if the cost of living is becoming unsustainable. So there is, there is an opportunity for if Labour just stops doing doing things wrong, that they could, they could improve their position in the polls just by virtue of the fact that the government has a very difficult agenda to deal with over the next few months. And obviously, they're at the opposite end of their kind of COVID-19 response at the minute where they're starting to remove support rather than offer it. So this is obviously a very diff different context to what we've experienced over the last couple of years. And I, I think we should expect the politics of that to be, to be different as well. But by the time we come to the next election, I'm sure voters will be looking at, at the whole picture and inevitably they'll be looking at whether they think Boris Johnson or Keir Starmer is the one with the vision for the future. And you have to say at the minute, whatever you think of Boris Johnson, he does have, a, he does have a, an optimistic and kind of um, energetic view of what he thinks the UK should look like in the future. And there's a lot of uh, work coming out of government at the minute in terms of net zero innovation, all these kinds of things about how to improve society and, and, and grow the economy that Labour just doesn't really have a, have a response to or a way to differentiate itself. So it, it's really difficult, but I think, yeah, we could, we could see Labour's position improve as the government runs into problems more than Labour actually taking over the agenda and, and managing to put forward a, po a positive vision. I thought it was quite interesting when um, the government made the announcement or Nissan made the announcement about um, the fact the factory in Sunderland and um, yesterday with government support, um, Nissan will create a factory for electric vehicles and um, batteries creating new jobs. And it really, to me, showed the, you know, a, a big example of the government's move i guess from from the the cameron osborne era into them actively supporting 
an, an industry with, with, with new funding. You've got the new legislation coming out, which shows a more activist industrial or innovation policy or industrial policy. The debate around tax has has shifted to the left with the post-COVID issue. And so I think the, the, the kind of the Overton moment around the, the economics has, has shifted. So therefore, it's interesting about where Labour places itself in, in that um, scenario, because, you know, where do you go when, as you say, you've not got anything really to respond to um, what the government is doing other than, oh, we would have just done it perhaps a bit quicker or a bit better and uh, given a bit more money. Where's the where's the differentiation, I guess, is, is, is the challenge. Yeah, I mean, an- another point on that was the recent decision to continue with steel tariffs um, to protect that industry as well. So there was another example. I, I think actually the gigafactory policy was one that Labour have talked about as well. So it's kind of another example. I'm not sure it's the government stealing Labour's clothes, but both parties basically being in the same place on these issues moving forward. And, and the problem for Labour is that they want the next election to be fought on economic issues, because that's where they think that they are closer to those um, those 2019 voters that they lost to the Conservatives. But actually, if the Conservatives have moved so far left on, on economic policy that Labour doesn't really have a differentiating point, then I'm not sure it is that advantageous for them. And they obviously don't want to fight the kind of cultural side of that either, because that, that that's really what where they think they, they struggle to have something to say to those voters. So it's very difficult for them. I mean, you have to give credit, I suppose, to, to the government for managing to hold this together. The question is how long Boris Johnson can hold his own co- electoral coalition together by, by moving quite far left on economics. We saw some of that at the Cheshire and Amersham by-election. Um, it's probably not going to shift quickly enough um, to have a substantial impact at the next election. So I think Labour just finds itself really um, up against quite a politically astute prime minister and one that has managed to tap into a sort of electoral uh, mathematics that it's very difficult for them to deal with. How long that lasts, obviously, is very difficult to say. And we, as, a, as I say, as, as kind of post-COVID economics play out, it may be that voters suddenly become a bit fed up with with the kind of uh, boosterism of Boris Johnson and want a bit more realism and um, and begin and to tackle the, the sort of difficult issues that they're facing in their day-to-day lives. But we'll have to wait and see. I think. I think this this the the, the politics of inflation is going to become. Um, a big theme and a big factor in in the coming weeks and weeks and months, and as you say, the cost of living and the direct implication of of the crisis on the lives of ordinary people will be something that that voters are very interested in. And I guess it will be about who ends up being blamed for that. Is it the is it government in in terms of you know is it its policies? Is it is it corporates? Is it businesses? I mean. <laughs> The government is so savvy; it could be Labour, but who knows? <laughs> um, so that that cost of living question is something that's going to really um, be interesting for Labour to have an answer to. And yeah, I, I totally agree with you on on the um, the social issues point, the culture issues point. And I thought personally the um, article by Tony Blair was quite interesting in the New Statesman a couple of weeks back, um, where he sort of talked about this, talked about this as being a big dividing problem for, for for the Labour Party and how how the party was perceived by many people across the country as being on the wrong side of these issues. And it really speaks to the big challenge that I guess you were talking about at the beginning or that we were talking about at the beginning about um, marrying these two fairly uneasy coalitions of, of voters, but also thinking about the mathematics of it um, as well with the um, Middle class graduates and Labour's traditional um, working class heartlands. 
how do you square that with um, on, on the social issue side? And that will be a big challenge for Keir Starmer from dealing with the membership versus dealing with who he wants to um, sort of speak to. Mm. Well, I think one of the major lessons or bits of advice that Tony Blair was giving there was you have to take these issues on and give voters an explanation that makes sense to them, but also positions you favourably on that issue. And I mean, I think at the minute, Labour's approach is that let's avoid talking about these things because they're a bit awkward. And probably the voters we want to talk to, the sort of working class voters, don't agree with the leadership's position. But actually, I think on lots of these issues, voters are much more nuanced and actually probably unless you're following the political debate very closely, they, they probably haven't thought about lots of these things in much detail. So there's an opportunity if you are a proactive leader to, to go and set the agenda on these things. And the problem with Labour's approach at the minute is that the Conservatives are completely controlling the narrative there, you know, sort of supported by, by, by different parts of the media, able to point to different issues and, and, and put Labour in a very difficult position. So I think what Tony Blair was saying is you can continue to react to these issues and always be on the back foot, or you can try and offer voters a positive um sort of interpretation from your perspective uh and 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 try and shape public opinion around what you believe rather than always responding to what the conservatives are are offering in terms of an interpretation so that's the real lesson i think exactly so you know shape rather than follow front foot rather than back foot proactive rather than reactive it goes back to what we were saying before about there needing to be a vision but i feel like we've this is the sort of third or fourth time we've had a version of this conversation at GC where we're saying a similar thing so when we come back to this in in the conference season or in September October with our next kind of labour feature hopefully um, we'll have something more substantive to discuss on those issues. Um, I think we'll leave it there so thanks so much Matt for your time it was really great to hear your perspective and thank you listeners for listening and we look forward to welcoming you to a GC event soon and hopefully you'll hear from me again on the GC podcast also. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list and you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.